Our text this morning is verses 18 through 21 of Ephesians 5. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in Proverbs, uh, verse 1 of chapter 20, we read, Wine is a mocker, and strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. We read those words of uh, verse 15 of Ephesians 5, teaching us that we are to walk not as unwise, but as wise. And then immediately following, we have this exhortation not to be drunk uh, with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine. Even that exhortation involves the assumption that Christians are not immune to the danger of such sin as drunkenness. It may be that some of the converts there in Ephesus who were delivered from their pagan lives were also delivered from a life of enslavement to drink. And it may well be that there were those who were delivered suddenly and completely so that they never went back to the bottle and perhaps were not even tempted to do so. Sometimes God's saving power and grace is evident that way. Not always. Sometimes Christians indeed may be delivered from enslavement and bondage to sin, but still face temptation and sometimes fall. And uh, they only avoid alcohol abuse by vigilance and great care. Perhaps uh, abstinence, which is the best solution for some who find that they have problems with alcohol. And it's not unheard of that mature Christians, even in their later years, perhaps gradually succumb to the temptation of alcohol misuse, gradually drinking more and more, gradually uh, treating alcohol as if it's the most important thing in any kind of social activity. And uh, before you know it, uh, people who have lived to 50, 60 years old without a problem find themselves ensnared with a real alcohol problem. Such warnings as our text are necessary in the Church of Jesus Christ. We could go back to the book of Proverbs and find other such warnings, sometimes with pretty graphic descriptions of the bad consequences of enslavement uh, to drink, as in Proverbs 23, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaining, who has wounds, without cause, who has redness of eyes? And then it describes those who tarry long at uh, the wine, those who are uh, fascinated by the swirl of the, uh, of the wine in the cup, as if uh, they're looking at the love of their life and finding all kinds of consequences, wounds without cause, their hearts uttering perverse things. Our text describes uh, alcohol abuse in terms of its uh, consequences. It defines that as debauchery. Other translations render that word uh, dissipation. It involves excess. Too much. Often too much of, of everything. Too much passion. 
uncontrolled passions under the influence, too much talk, too much humor that goes off track, too much anger, too much lust, dissipation, excess. The book of Proverbs is great in addressing the reality of uh, the sin and the consequences of alcohol use. But what the book of Proverbs does not do is uh, give us that positive alternative to drunkenness that our text proclaims. And it proclaims it with a fullness and a clarity which is now ours in Christ. And of course, the, the remedy, the alternative to drunkenness and a kind of artificially induced elation and joy and sense of well-being is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That power, that person by whom uh, we have been sealed unto the day of redemption, as Paul says earlier in this book. It's not only an alternative to drunkenness, of course, but rather... The indwelling spirit is a divine presence with us, in us, for our whole lives. And that's the positive exhortation that we want to give attention to this morning. In contrast to being drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. God commands us, God commands us all to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look first of all at that command and then we're going to look at its consequences as uh, they are spelled out in this passage. First of all, we need to look at the command itself. It's easy to repeat, right? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not so easy. It's not so obvious to understand its meaning. But we have to begin with an assumption. And uh, it's an assumption that's just on the surface of our text. And that is that being filled with the Spirit is not something that's simply to be taken for granted. As if all Christians, by virtue of being Christians, are filled with the Holy Spirit. As if, as the result of Pentecost, all Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we just considered uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That great redemptive historical event, that, that one-of-a-kind, unrepeatable event in which the exalted Lord Jesus Christ, having received the promise of the Spirit from the Father as a reward of his, uh, his faithful work as our mediator, poured out his Spirit upon the church, equipping uh, his church down through the centuries then to know and to serve the Lord as prophets, priests, and kings for the advance of his church until Christ comes again enabling his people to offer up spiritual worship, enabling his people to live lives under the control of the Holy Spirit, indeed. So Pentecost is crucial, no doubt. It's described in Acts 2, verse uh, 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And Pentecost is not repeated in its essential meaning, as I just described it. But the fact is that there are subsequent and repeated instances in the scripture of the use of this language of being filled with the Holy Spirit. 
We have it in Acts chapter 4. Uh, when the Sanhedrin uh, got after the uh, apostles for preaching in the name of Jesus after having healed this man who was lame from his mother's womb and they uh, arrested them and said, by what power, by what name have you done this? And then Peter preached Christ to them. But before he preached Christ to them, we're told that he being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he spoke. Actually, in that same chapter, we have another instance. And in this case, it involved the church. When the church began to face opposition and persecution, they got together as God's people and, and they prayed. And we're told in uh, this, this chapter that when they had prayed, verse 31 of chapter 4, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. There it describes their being filled with the Holy Spirit as something that happened in answer to their prayer. We could look at other instances uh, of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit and then he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God while he was being stoned to, to death. Or Paul, uh, before rebuking Elimaeus and calling him the son of the devil, filled with all wickedness, we're told that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he spoke such words of rebuke under the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. So there are these other specific instances. Often the Holy Spirit's filling is spoken of in connection with, with bold and faithful testimony to the truth. Faithful witness. But in addition to the fact that we have repeated instances of uh, God's people being filled with the Spirit, we also have uh, examples of people being described as full of the Holy Spirit. In fact, remember, that was one of the qualifications of the men who were to be sought out in order to uh, assist uh, the apostles in this matter of looking after the Grecian widows. The, the foundation for the institution of the office of deacon involves this description of such men as those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so there it, it appears to be used to describe a kind of maturity in the faith a kind of godliness of character that is identifiable and is to be attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit. Barnabas is described as a good man, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now it's true that every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that every Christian is thus then described as being filled with the Holy Spirit. Or such distinctions would not mean anything and our, our text would hardly be a, a, an intelligible because we're commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that assumes that it's not something to be taken for granted as a constant necessarily at all. In fact, the command of our text indicates that to be filled with the Spirit is an ongoing uh, duty. The, the tense of the verb indicates uh, that it is to be a continuing endeavor on the part of God's people. That implies that this is, you might say, a doable activity. By faith, 
It's as if Paul is saying here, endeavor to live and walk in the fullness of the Spirit's working and grace in your life. Paul had earlier prayed in this epistle that the Ephesians would be filled with all the fullness of God. That they would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length, the depth, the height, to know the surpassing love of Christ through the power that works in them. He is praying that by the power of the Holy Spirit, they would uh, grow in such a knowledge of Christ as to be filled with a sense and wonder of his love, filled with the fullness of God. That's a kind of passage that's just really hard to comprehend. It just sounds so wonderful and great. We ought to see that also connected with the work of the Holy Spirit. It's as if the Apostle Paul, in effect, is saying, brothers and sisters, take responsibility to believe in this power of the Spirit and to seek it, to pray for more of the Holy Spirit's working in your lives. Isn't that like the greatest promise that Jesus gave to us? That our Heavenly Father, much more than earthly fathers who themselves are sinful, will give us not only good things, but the best of things. He will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. That ought not to be limited to our, our thoughts of Pentecost as if it were a one-time gift and, and Christians need no longer pray for the work of the Holy Spirit. We sang from Psalm 143. We prayed together in our song that the Holy Spirit would be our guide, that he would lead us. Let me ask you children, let me ask you young people, along with all the other kinds of things that you pray for, Lord, help me to do this and to do that. Lord, forgive me of my sin. Do you pray for the Holy Spirit to work in your lives? Do you believe in the personal, powerful, divine presence of God in your life? I hope you take this command as a great encouragement to know and to believe that God wants you to be filled with his spirit and he wants you to expect that he is able to give you more of the fruit of the spirit, right? Walk in the spirit, we read in Galatians, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So then the next question, how do we obey this command? I've already indicated some things, but... Uh, more specifically, what can we do? We're commanded to be filled with his spirit. Well, how do we do that? Well, I want to make it, I want to give it some focus. I want to give it biblical clarity. And I put it this way. Continually drink deeply of Christ by faith in his word. And you might say, well, why, why do you put it that way? Well, that's where God's word directs us. Actually, there's a very important parallel to this uh, exhortation in Ephesians in the book of Colossians. In Ephesians, we read the words, be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. In the book of Colossians chapter 3, it follows the language very closely at certain points, but in the place of being filled with the Spirit, it says, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with melody in your heart to the Lord. In other words, the same consequences are connected with a different way of describing the source. On the one hand, it's be filled with the Holy Spirit. On the other, it's let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Because as the word of Christ dwells in you richly by faith, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. We ought to see these things as so closely, so intimately connected. The Bible doesn't uh, point us to occasional ecstasies that somehow we might achieve if we follow certain techniques. It doesn't set us upon a quest for some kind of experience. To be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the knowledge of Christ. It's to be filled with his words. His words abiding in us. Abide in me, Jesus said, and I in you. If my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. Jesus himself draws this very close connection with him abiding in us and his words abiding in us. This is a gracious command then, isn't it? It teaches us that there is a fullness of grace for us in Christ's provision of his Holy Spirit. Think of the way the promise of the Spirit was given by our Lord Jesus Christ uh, in John chapter uh, 7 where we read on the last day of the feast, that great day Jesus stood up and cried, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. What a wonderful way of describing the, the Holy Spirit as a source of overflowing, refreshing water from our very hearts. Jesus told the Samaritan woman that whoever drank of the water that he would give to them, that water would become within them a well of life, springing up unto eternal life. It's a gracious command. It challenges us, doesn't it? to compare our experiences even uh, with the language of Scripture and the way it often describes believers in a way that often leads me to think, you know, do I know what that really means? Is that characteristic of my, of my Christian experience, at least on occasion? Do I sometimes feel that, right? I mean, you read Romans 5, and uh, we're encouraged to know that uh, we, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Not only that, we rejoice in tribulation because we know that tribulation produces uh, perseverance and perseverance produces character and, and character hope. And that hope doesn't leave us ashamed. It doesn't disappoint us. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's some experiential knowledge of the love of God that enables us to rejoice in the hope of glory. 
that enables us even to rejoice when times are hard because we know God is accomplishing good things for us. We know this God of love through Jesus Christ. Or you come to uh, 1 Peter and it speaks of love to an unseen Christ whom though we do not see him yet believing we love him We believe in him. And so believing, we rejoice in him with a fullness of joy, full of glory. Often it's through suffering that Christians experience such joy. In fact, even a few of those instances in Scripture indicate this. It's while Stephen was being uh, put to death for his faithful testimony that the Lord graced him with this joy and this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter speaks to persecuted Christians and, uh, and encourages them with the thought that if you suffer for righteousness' sake, the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rests upon you. How else can you explain the fact that Christians have suffered such horrible mistreatment and have been able to rejoice in it and felt God's presence in a marvelous way? Those things encourage us, don't they? They encourage us to believe in the personal, powerful indwelling of the Holy Spirit and to seek to live indeed more and more in his fullness. And I want us to be clear that the Bible doesn't leave us in the dark as to how we ought to pursue that. It's to pursue the knowledge of Jesus Christ, to be more profoundly affected and influenced by the wonder of who he is and what he has done and what he does, because that's the great work of the Holy Spirit if we're going to honor the Holy Spirit, we're going to focus on the things on which the Holy Spirit shines the spotlight of his saving illumination. And it's upon the face of Jesus Christ. God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You might say, who is a Christian? A Christian is someone who has been awakened to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has effectively taught them that he is the Savior. And they trust in him. And they love him. And his spirit is within them. Well, that leads us then to look at the consequences of being filled with the Spirit. And we have that in verses 19 and uh, following where, where Paul basically describes that uh, in these, these participles, these words that end in I-N-G. In other words, he, he gives the command to be filled with the Spirit, and then he gives uh, different descriptions of what that actually looks like, how that becomes manifested. Be filled with the Spirit, he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Singing and making melody in, to the Lord with your heart. Secondly, giving thanks, always. And then thirdly, submitting to one another. Those three things. 
Now we might read that and uh, think that really doesn't sound all that spiritual. It sounds, it sounds you might even say, uh, rather, rather ordinary. It doesn't sound very impressive to many people. Now if you're talking about speaking in tongues or prophesying or somehow exercising gifts of healing, oh, no, that's impressive. Oh, that shows the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, those aren't the kinds of things that uh, uh, the New Testament points us to. You might say that, well, yes, if, uh, if a lame man born uh, lame from his mother's womb was healed suddenly in, in middle age and went walking into a temple uh, singing and uh, leaping and praising God, yeah, if I saw that, I would be impressed too. I've never saw anything like that. So even though professed uh, gifts of the Spirit in that way don't seem to be actually given according to the will of the Holy Spirit because they bear a little resemblance to those gifts as we read of them in the New Testament. But that's not what the Bible focuses our attention on at all. It speaks of things that we might consider rather remarkable in comparison. The first is that spirit-filled living is marked by praise, singing, you know that one of the most frequent commands in the book of Psalms, I believe it's found more often than any command to pray, is the command to sing. And one of the most frequent resolutions that we hear in the Psalms are words like, I will sing, I will sing unto the Lord. It's repeated again and again and again. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's been uh, noted that these are terms that are most often used of the biblical psalms. And the psalms certainly are rich with features of praise that are, that are described here in our text. And we can see three features of, uh, of such praise. For one thing, it involves mutual edification. It is addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that's indeed what we find in many of the psalms. There is this horizontal dimension to our singing. We teach one another. We build one another up as we sing together. Uh, we stir one another up as we declare the wonderful works of God together in song. So there's this mutual edification and mutual instruction and fellowship that the saints experience as they sing together. And the Holy Spirit is ministering to us in this way. Secondly, we see that the melody of true praise is not just for the ears, or it's not just to stir emotions, but it's from the heart, making melody in your heart. And again, isn't that what you find uh, so characteristic also of the Psalms and all biblical songs, really. They express inward faith and love and contrition and repentance and, and joy and desires. Expressions of the heart. And then thirdly, it is to the Lord that we sing. And that ought to also be an encouragement to, to those of us who can't carry a tune very well. And you might be intimidated and think, well, I don't want to really open my mouth because those sitting next to me and around me are going to hear uh, me sing. And I just only got one note. We have a beloved brother in our church who uh, can't carry a tune. And I love him for the fact that he just sings out. Everybody does, right? It's to the Lord that we sing. 
And don't worry, if you can't carry a tune, your voice will blend in with other voices that can. But you do that for Christ's sake. So singing. Secondly, spirit-filled living is marked by thanksgiving. Giving thanks. Always and for everything to God the Father. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are filled with the Spirit are filled with thanksgiving. Those whose lives are marked by the Holy Spirit's presence live lives that are marked also by gratitude, thankfulness. They find reasons to give thanks in all circumstances. For all things, our text says. They find reasons to see God's goodness and his gracious hand, even in trials and hard things. They receive every good thing as those who have received the greatest thing, that is God's grace in Jesus Christ. Having not spared his own son, how much more will he also freely with him give us all things? And we leave it up to him to define the all things in terms of our, our specific circumstances. But we have reasons to be thankful as we live in the awareness that God is our Heavenly Father. And he's our Heavenly Father for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we give thanks. And then thirdly, spirit-filled living is marked by, by willing submission. Verse 21, submitting to one another in reverence, out of reverence for Christ. And this is actually kind of an introduction to the rest of the chapter and even to the beginning of chapter 6 because Paul here is, he is describing a spirit-filled life and uh, he fleshes it out in terms of these three specific things, a life of praise, a life of thanksgiving, and a life that's characterized by godly submission. And then he, he zeroes in on that last one and then fleshes that out in specific examples, beginning with wives, submit to your husbands. Then he, then he speaks of uh, uh, children who are to obey their their parents, and then he speaks of servants, right? He always he doesn't begin with, with the husbands and begin with the parents and begin then with, uh, with the masters, but he begins with those in a role of submission. And that's important for us to understand this passage. You know, it's a passage that's often used to teach, to teach what's called mutual submission. And, uh, and that's to be, that's explained as, well, everybody submits to everybody, okay? That's using the word submission in a way that the Bible uh, doesn't use it. There may be one other instance in which it's, it's used that way, but here in the context it's clearly uh, a matter of laying down a principle that, it, that is then explained in specific instances. You know, if it, if it teaches mutual submission, if I, I go along and say mutual submission, you all submit to everyone, you might have children that are paying very cool for careful attention and on the way home from church they're gonna say, Dad, I heard the minister say that you've got to submit to me just as much as I got to submit to you problem, right? No, Paul is teaching us to exhibit that gracious humility and uh, submission to our Lord Jesus Christ, to submission to God, even as, as the Holy Spirit filled our Lord with that humble spirit of a servant in obedience to his Father. So the Holy Spirit leads us to the submission that is appropriate for every, every relationship to do so for the Lord's sake. 
in reverence to Christ. Spirit-filled living is a life of worshiping. It's a worshiping life. It's a thankful life. And it's a, a quiet, humble life. It's a beautiful life. It's a life that blesses others. To go back briefly to that promise that we heard in, in the Gospel of John, that whoever believes in him, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. Well, that involves that the refreshment and the, the life that we possess as those indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's not simply for ourselves. But those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit become sources of blessing, ministering the Spirit's grace also to others. And that ought to be an encouragement to us. I know there's a lot here this morning, but the command is simple. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you just take that simple command home with you and you think about it and you remember something about what it means and you begin to pray about it and your thoughts of the Christian life are shaped and influenced more by that thought, well, then God has blessed his word to us this morning. Amen.